Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 181 of the Ski Podcast, and thanks for joining us, listener. Today's episode is a special interview with Peter Landsman. Peter is the founder of the website liftblog.com and has personally seen more than 3,000 lifts in 720 resorts across North America. I'm pretty certain that no one out there knows more about lifts than Peter. Peter joined us from his home in Jackson Hole, and we cover a wide range of topics, including how his love for lifts started, his views on T-bars versus button lifts, what he thought of skiing in Europe, and we quiz him on his favourite lifts. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Peter. I think you'll enjoy our conversation, even the part where we are interrupted by a moose. My name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Peter Landsman. Hi, Peter. How are you? Good morning, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, you say good morning. For me, it's about half past one in the afternoon. What time of the day is it for you? It is uh, 6.30 a.m. here in uh, the Rocky Mountains. You're in the Rocky Mountains and remind us which resort you're based in? I am in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which I'm guessing some of your leader, or your uh, listeners have probably heard of. They they absolutely uh, have, I'm sure. <laughs> it's on the uh, bucket list for many, many people. I think um, Corbett's Couloir is in Jackson, isn't it? Is that right? That is uh, at the top of the mountain, yes. Yeah, that's probably one of the most famous uh, areas. But certainly uh, we had a few journalists uh, from the UK go out to that area uh, this winter. Uh, Rob Stewart has been on the show a few times, uh, certainly wrote uh, an article about it. And it's a very beautiful part of the world. I was lucky enough to be in Yellowstone uh, last year, summer rather than uh, winter. But as I say, it remains on my uh, bucket list. Now, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And we've been trying to line this up for a while. You mentioned that season's sort of finished. I think I contacted you back in the autumn and, you know, it's 6.30 in the morning. Normally in the life of a ski resort, that's the kind of starting point of the day and you work it in Jackson Hole. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I doubt there's anyone in America, possibly the world, who is so knowledgeable about every ski lift that's out there particularly in the usa and listen if you don't believe me we're going to be talking about it but you can have a look at peter's site i'll put a link into the show notes it called it's called liftblog.com now just give us some numbers peter um how many lifts in america have you seen in in how many resorts i am up to just over three thousand individual lifts at uh, 720 ski areas, which is just about all of them. Uh, there are a few <laughs> limited exceptions, like uh, the private ski resort that I haven't been to. Um, are there a couple that are like at military bases? But other than that, I have been to every ski resort in America. That is 
quite uh, incredible. I mean, I've talked to some very experienced uh, ski journalists, people like Arnie Wilson, who skied the world, uh, Peter Hardy, and they've been to lots of ski resorts. But that is an unbelievable number. And I think it's gone up quite a lot. You must have been to quite a few this winter as well, because you were below nowhere near 3,000 lifts uh, like a year or, or, or so ago. It, it has. I've been working on going to all the ski resorts in Canada uh, this last year. So uh, there are about 250 total in Canada, and uh, I've been trying to get to as many of those as I can. Right. That is a pretty amazing total. And we're going to come back to that and your knowledge of the lifts and your uh, website as well. But evidently, you have real love for lifts and for skiing. You, you know, you're working in the industry. I wondered how you got into that. Where are you from in the States? Were you born in a ski resort? I was not. I, uh, I'm from Seattle, Washington. Uh, but I did grow up skiing uh, from a very young age. My dad took me skiing starting at, uh, I think, around three or four at uh, Snoqualmie Pass, which is only about 45 minutes from downtown Seattle, which is a really amazing uh, thing to have uh, when you're growing up. And so we would go skiing every weekend uh, at Snoqualmie Pass. And then uh, later when I was in middle school and high school, we would go to Crystal Mountain, which is a really fabulous place uh, right next to Mount Rainier. Uh, that gets just a ton of snow and uh, has great terrain. Yeah, and doesn't, you know, that that um, northwest part of the state has a really good snow record, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, people who travel the world to ski, you know, don't necessarily think of the Pacific Northwest as as a destination. It's not, these aren't glitzy resorts with, with big hotels and, uh, you know, fancy restaurants, but but the skiing itself is uh, is really great in that part of the world. It snows a lot, and uh, I, I really enjoyed growing up there. Yeah, and Mount Baker, is that over that way? Doesn't that hold all the records for kind of season snowfall? Absolutely. World record snowfall is Mount Baker, Washington, which I believe is over 1,100 inches in one season. Uh, and that was in, I think, 97, 98 when I was um, eight years old that season. Wow. Okay. You obviously started skiing at a young age and you might be interested in that. I also started skiing. My parents are skiers. You know, they took me, uh, you know, at a young age and, you know, I'm incredibly lucky uh, in that respect. Slightly more difficult from uh, the UK because we're not 45 minutes or like a short drive away from a ski resort, but still managed to do it. And now I'm working in industry many years later. You're working in industry now. How did that segue into finding a job within uh, skiing and snow sports? Well, I took a, a pretty traditional American path, uh, went to high school at home, and then I went to uh, college in New England um, in Maine. So during college, I skied quite a bit, as much as I could. Uh, it, you know, while some mm-hmm. people were partying on Friday and Saturdays, I was <laughs> trying to rest as much as I could to go skiing the next day. And uh, I would drag whoever I could to go with me on uh, Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings um, in college. And then after college, I knew I wanted to at least work at a ski resort for a season. Uh, and so back when I when I started, it was really you had to show up at a ski resort to get a job there. Um, it was before Zoom and uh, mm-hmm. virtual hiring. So. So I actually went to a job fair in October in Jackson Hole in 2012 and uh, just interviewed on the spot. Uh, a few days later, they called me, offered me a position as a lift operator, and uh, I moved here that fall. Why did you pick Jackson Hole? Because you come from the West Coast. 
yeah. educated over there on the East Coast? Do you think, right, I'll just pick somewhere right in the middle? <laughs> well, I had been to Jackson Hole actually in the summertime, like most people, to go to the national parks. Um, so I knew how beautiful it was. I wanted to be in a real ski town. Um, there are a lot of ski resorts in America that are not actual towns um, that are were built as ski resorts. Um, Jackson is one of those cool places that was... Uh, a town before it was a ski resort. So there's a lot of culture here, a lot of history here. And uh, it's just a beautiful place. And I just, I just kind of picked it on a, with, with a small amount of research and, and a mostly just a whim. Well, certainly from my, from my uh, knowledge of it, it is one of those uh, special places. And you can uh, tell me, I'm not a hundred percent sure about the history. Was it a mining town before it was a, uh, a ski town? It was not mining. It was more fur trapping, um, kind of a trading post um and it was actually incorporated very late i mean i think the town of jackson was not incorporated until like 1950 so there wasn't a whole lot here until (laughs) until uh fairly recently yeah so you get that you know that wild west as you might say uh uh, feel to it and then you got your first job you know working as a as a lifty now you're a lift supervisor for the resort is that right that's correct yep what what lift are you working on? Or are you kind of covering the whole uh, system? Uh, I have a few colleagues and we bounce around um, all the different lifts here. We have about 15 lifts, uh, but I wear a bunch of different hats uh, in the off seasons, like right now when we're not open. Um, I'm doing a lot of our hiring for the next season. Uh, I do a lot of our training. So when we have new, new employees, uh, they need to learn how to run lifts safely. And then when we're operating, uh, supervising a lift is is wearing a lot of hats, but uh, one of the one of the ones is uh, skiing around and checking in with everyone and making sure they're all where they're supposed to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. So that means a lot of time skiing around the mountain, uh, checking in at all the lifts. Yeah, you make it you make it sound like a really tough job. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, you said uh, when we were talking about a time to have a chat that, you know, early in the morning, 6.30 for you isn't a problem. During during the winter, what's your kind of daily schedule then? So in the wintertime, uh, you know, it's now 6.45. I would I would already be on the mountain by now. So we get there very early. Um, a, a lot of times in the morning, I go up on a snowmobile um, to help get lifts ready uh, before the lift operators even get there. Um, our gondolas here, we actually put all the gondola cabins inside at night. So, uh, often I help put the gondola cabins outside in the morning and then we see who all shows up, which lift operators are maybe missing that day and where they're all going to go and how we're, how we're going to get each lift staffed and, uh, ready to go and free of snow by 9am. Yeah. And, uh, do you adjust based on you know how many guests you're expecting on the mountain that day you must have some kind of feel based on seasonality and maybe on pre-lift pass sales what the volume is going to be on a particular day uh we do we we have icon pass reservations so we know how many icon pass holders are planning to come each day Um, and we know how many how many lift tickets have been sold in advance but really with lift operations um it doesn't so much matter how how many skiers there are we run all the lifts every day as is our goal so whether they're empty chairs going up or a big line it doesn't change the job that much we run the lifts regardless of the weather and regardless of the crowds 
Sure, of course, uh, that makes sense. Uh, I guess maybe I was thinking about some of the measures that they've introduced in Europe in more recent years would be if it's times of low demand, then they've been looking at maybe running the list slightly slower. So it's imperceptible, you know, to the consumer, to the skier themselves, but it's an energy saver overall. Yeah, I, I actually, we might get into this a little later, but I actually just skied in Europe for the first time a few weeks ago. And uh, I was amazed at the energy efficient operations and how much how much effort they've put into trying to save energy. I would say in uh, particularly where I'm at in the United States, we have some of the cheapest electricity in the country and probably the world. Um, so it's not quite as much of a focus here. Um, we certainly do what we can as far as turning off lights and and uh, things at night. But uh, as far as day-to-day -day operation of lifts, uh, we don't adjust lift speed uh, based on energy or crowding. Um, and we also don't close lifts when it's quiet. We we run every lift every day uh, with a very set schedule. Yeah, well, that's certainly a, a good uh, advert for Jackson. We will talk about that trip to Europe because I did notice that when I was doing <laughs> my research. Uh, but let's let's come back to uh, your website, Lift Blogs. So obviously, you know, you from a pretty young age you'd skied quite a lot of areas you know you said you're going out every weekend when you're on uh the east coast in new england there's a lot of ski resorts in that area uh you've been in the rockies and you've been over on the west uh, as well when did your website liftblog.com start then and why did you start it well i've always been interested in the lifts as much as i've been interested in skiing i mean as long as i can remember uh i was sort of in my head cataloging the different lifts at each ski resort and what type of lift it was and how long it was and maybe how old it was. Uh, so I've always been sort of doing that in my head. And I started kind of keeping track on a computer when I was pretty young. Um, but the, the website started as an off season, off season project when I was just a seasonal employee here in Jackson. Uh, I was just thinking of uh, some way to share all the knowledge and information that I had collected about lifts and skiing with others. And uh, I read a lot of other blogs about other topics. And I, I realized there was no website just about ski lifts. And uh, it was created for about, I think it was $200 on wordpress.com. And that is the same website you see today. It's, uh, it's pretty simple, but it's gotten much larger. Yeah, well, there's a lot of information on there. What, what year was it that it went live? Uh, 2015. Right. So relatively recently then. Okay. You know, I think one of the things that um, probably got you a lot of visitors to start off with and something that you probably found quite interesting cataloging was the lists of new lifts that were coming in in the following season. And I had a little look at it uh, earlier this week. I was like, yeah, okay, these are the, all of the lifts that are planned to go into operation for uh, the 2023-24 season that have been announced already anyway. And there, you know, you've obviously used uh, Google Maps and plotted them on there and you can, uh, you know, cross-reference it through that. Those lists of new lifts that were one of the, the kind of driving forces behind the website? Yes, that is a very popular part of my website. And uh, I I personally, because I'm so interested in all these lifts, I personally find it like I just really try and keep track of what's what's coming next. Um, I'm always on the lookout for a press release about a new lift or maybe uh, even just like a permit application uh, with the government for for permission to build a new lift. Uh, 
I, I've gotten pretty good at sort of sleuthing around and figuring out <laughs> how these how these projects become public record. Always looking out for what's coming next. And uh, right now, in particular, it's a really exciting time in the, the United States because uh, ski resorts are are really expanding and building a lot of new lifts. Right. Okay. I mean, we'll again we'll come on to Europe, but in Europe, it is very uh, different because. Um, there are, I was thinking, I was trying to put together a blog post myself that I'm going to write for someone else uh, about the number of um, valley lifts, projects that are going to go from the valley floor up to resorts. And there's lots of reasons for this. They want to take traffic off the road, etc. It's a sustainability driver behind it. But some of these projects have been, uh, you know, talked about and underway for five to 10 years already. You're talking about sleuthing around and trying to find, you must have projects like that where it's it's rumored and it's always going to happen it's always going to happen but it keeps being pushed further into the future absolutely and then there are other ones that i i've never heard a peep about and just catch me complete completely by surprise uh it's amazing how far sometimes they can get along without becoming public and then all of a sudden they're they're digging digging there's holes in the ground and someone sends me a picture and says this looks like a lift is going in here and i have to say oh wow i didn't know about that one <laughs> and so, so the website itself, you know, details all of the lifts. But you know, you yourself, you mentioned earlier, you visited over three thousand uh, lifts. I don't know if you have you been on all of those three thousand, or have you just seen uh, them? I've been to the top. Um, sometimes it's tricky. You know, you'll go to a ski resort and there'll be two lifts right next to each other, and and one one will be running and the next one won't. Or I go on a particular day and, you know, one lift off to the side is is broken that day or they don't have enough staff to run it. So I haven't ridden every single lift, but I have I have one way or another photographed each lift. Uh, well, evidently, these um, yeah, other resorts don't have the same high standards that Jackson Hole have, which are always going to run uh, all, all lifts. But what you know, what came first then this goal of of seeing all of the lifts and photographing all the lifts so is that after the website started or was that already well underway by the time you started the website so i had i had started taking pictures of lifts uh where i went before the website started uh but i never thought i never thought i would be able to go to all of them um i just kept working at it in chunks you know four or five six ski resorts at a time on a trip it wasn't clear until pretty close to the end that I actually could visit all of them because there are some pretty remote places in the United States with ski lifts um, in Alaska, in uh, North Dakota, uh, some places that are open five days a year, some places that are owned by a, a private school that, you know, only operate on Saturdays when it snows. Uh, so it it wasn't clear until the very end that I could actually make this happen right but you but you have and and so to go to over three thousand resorts uh, excuse me three thousand lifts 720 resorts how do you actually find the time to be able to do it well one of the amazing things about uh my employer one of the things i really appreciate here is we are very committed to a four-day work week so um everybody in mountain operations works four days a week and it's it's shift work. So I have colleagues I can sometimes trade days with if I would need to go to, say, Virginia, which is way on the East Coast. Uh, I can get a couple days covered by a coworker and then work for him another time. 
and uh, string some days together and then and fly where I need to go and not miss any work. Uh, just just use my weekend and then a few days of trades. Well, I love that. That is flexible working. You mentioned, you know, that uh, I mean, obviously, people know that uh, um, North America is a continent uh, of an extremely vast size to fly across it it will take hours in itself and you know there are some lifts some ski resorts that are in decidedly non-mountainous states because i was looking on the list there i think and am i oklahoma wisconsin tennessee do they have ski lifts (laughs) absolutely nearly every state has some form of ski lift uh not always at a ski resort but uh it it really is remarkable, the United States ski industry, uh, you know, listeners in Europe probably think of Vail and Mammoth and Big Sky, but there are hundreds of, of smaller, mid-sized mountains that really aren't even mountains uh, all across the country. You know, the, the states with the most individual mountains are kind of surprising. It's uh, New York State, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Those those places have 20, 30, 40 ski areas apiece. And then you look at a state like Wyoming, where Jackson Hole is, and we really only have um, 10 or 15 ski areas here. So uh, the ski industry in uh, in America is, is very diverse. Um, there are mountains of all sizes and shapes, and uh, I've enjoyed visiting all the different types. Yeah, and you've been to all of them. And you mentioned Alaska just then. I mean, just like physically that must be the hardest to get to and visit and get around. I mean, the infrastructure is not quite there that it is in some other states. Yeah, it's it's varied. Um, the skier areas near Anchorage are actually quite easy to get to. Anchorage is uh, a pretty large city and, and has lots of flights in. Uh, so there's there are a cluster of ski areas right near Anchorage and Fairbanks that were, that were fairly simple. Um, and that's actually where I was when COVID March 2020 shut down. I was in Alaska and I worried about how I was going to get home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then the other, uh, like in Southeast Alaska, there are some towns with ski areas that are not accessible by any road. Um, so you either have to fly there or take a boat. And uh, I actually have a funny story. One of the last ones I visited was called Mount Eyak, E-Y-A-K, uh, in Cordova, Alaska. And uh, I had to take a, a flight that's called the Milk Run on Alaska Airlines. <laughs> it stops, it starts in Seattle and it stops at like six different Southeast Alaska towns uh, on its way to Anchorage every day. It, we stopped at a few other towns first, but when we got to Cordova, we stopped. There's no gates or anything, no, no uh, terminal building. You just park on the tarmac and the plane stopped and nobody got up. And uh, and finally, after a few minutes, they got on the PA and they said, uh, Mr. Landsman, we have one passenger for Cordova. Please exit now. <laughs> and I was the only person going to that town that day. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that probably sums up the uh, the dedication that you put in to go and see uh, all of these uh, all of these different resorts. And and you mentioned, you know, Europe. Um, I was, I think, looking through your uh, Instagram. Uh, and I saw that you came over to Europe this year for the Interalpin uh, Trade Fair. And that is the world's largest trade show for, for mountain technology. Happens in uh, Austria or Innsbruck uh, every couple of years. How was that experience? How was that uh, for you? Uh, it was an incredible trip. I had never been 
uh, I had I had been to Europe just to go to the tourist cities in London and and Paris, but I had never been to the mountains. So uh, I had heard about skiing in in Europe forever, uh, never had the chance to do it, um, but I got to go and. It it was in mid-April and I'd heard about the snow situation. I was a little worried. You know, I thought maybe I just go to the trade show and don't don't ski. Uh, but but pretty quickly I realized I've got to bring bring ski ski gear. Uh, and I got to go skiing. I got to go to the trade show and also some lift factories, which were were really incredible. Yeah, where did he ski them? I was directed by the lift companies where to go for the coolest lifts. So. Um, I went to Solden, uh, Ischgl, uh, Arlberg, and I did one day in Germany at the uh, riding the tram up to the Zugspitz. So, um, yeah, I can imagine I'm visualizing some of the lifts that you uh, went on. I think, uh, um, you know, they have some great, I think you call them trams, maybe we call them cable cars. Um, but the probably the, the um, Galzigbahn in St. Anton, you said you went to Arlberg. Was it St. Anton that you skied? Yep, uh, the Galzig Bond was the first lift I rode there for sure. Yeah, it's uh, very been, beautiful design uh, at the bottom there. I'd been seeing videos of that Ferris wheel type station since I was since it was built, and uh, that was a long time ago now. And I, I I finally got to ride it, and it was incredible. Uh, as you'll know, probably better than me, there's so many other lifts uh, that you can take the opportunity of. We'll come back to Europe another time. Now you've knocked out uh, the 720 resorts in in North America. You might have more trouble doing it uh, over a weekend like you have done, you know, in your, in the States so far. So you probably know more about lifts than anyone in the industry. I wanted to ask your opinions then. I don't, I don't know if this is like a quick fire round or whatever, but um, T-bars or button lifts? What what's your uh, opinion there? Like which one is better, or what do yeah. I think of them? Which one's better, T bars or button lifts? Um, I'm always by myself, usually on these trips, so might as well just be a button lift. We actually call them platter lifts here, um, right? Because it's kind of like a platter you would eat food off of. Um, <laughs> they're they're not very common though. We you have many more of them in uh, Europe than we have here in the states. Okay, is that because you mainly have chairs? Or do you actually have T bars? We have some T bars as well, but but we call those both of those surface lifts, and and um, they're not nearly as common. Um, they are more common in Canada, but in the United States, most of these smaller ski resorts have just fixed grip chairlifts. Yeah, well, okay, that leads me on to my next question then, because um, you know one of the uh, innovations we've seen in chairlifts uh, more recently is detachable chairlifts versus fixed grip chairlifts. Got a, a view there? Uh, they both have their place. I'm a sucker for a double chair that's old, but uh, but as a technology guy, I would have to say detachable lifts are uh, are very cool machines. Yeah, I mean a, a double chair lift. Um, I have been. I don't think it's around anymore, but I have been on a single chair lift in the ski resort of Bakira Beret in uh, in Spain in the uh, Spanish Pyrenees a long time ago. I think that's probably been uh, replaced now. But a double chair lift is is pretty rare. I'm not sure where I might have been on one in recent years. It's possible that uh, in Roccarosa in Italy, I went on one. But okay, that leads me to my next question then. We already have six-person chairs. There are eight-person chairs. Are they just going to get bigger and bigger? Are we ever going to see like a 10-person chair? I don't think we'll go much bigger, but I do think 10-person is possible. Uh, there, there are a lot of very visionary 
ski resort operators out there who like to dream up crazy ideas. And, uh, and if there's one thing I've learned with this, the lift manufacturers, if, if you dream it up and have enough money, they will build uh, whatever kind of lift that a customer wants. So uh, I will never say never on that one. I, I think it's possible. Right. Okay. I mean, talking about like stranger lifts, what's the strangest lift you've seen then? Uh, you mentioned single chairs. Uh, uh, this this place I went in uh, Cordova, Alaska, actually has a single chair that was built in the 1930s in Sun Valley and moved up to Alaska. It's partially made of wood. It's a single chair, which is very unique for uh, the United States and uh, operates very, very sparingly when they have snow at sea level in uh, in Alaska. And then another one, uh, as far as more modern lifts, uh, in New Jersey, there's an indoor ski resort, the first in America, called Big Snow. And uh, they have a quad chairlift that actually hangs from the ceiling instead of having towers coming up from the ground. So you're riding um, below most of the lift equipment, which is uh, pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or it sounds, it sounds weird. I mean, you know, I... I have been to quite a lot of um indoor snow centers i can't remember that i've been on any that have a chairlift in there what what length is a the slope there at, at big snow i would guess it's about 800 feet long um you, you'll know what that is in meters but uh... yeah roughly 300 meters something like that maybe 270 something like that yeah that's a quite a lengthy slope. well that's one to uh, look out for okay i got another question for you this is actually one that i saw uh that uh, i think maybe you discussed somewhere else on your blog or something like this we get on these lifts the whole time as skiers and you know we put all this faith into uh, you know these cables that are running above our heads but the, the cables go round and round and round. But once upon a time, it was a single piece of cable. So how does that become a continuous loop? How do they get joined somewhere? This is a very timely question because two days ago, uh, we did a splice, we call it, on the tram at Jackson. And I was actually on the crew that helped with that. So uh, the short answer is, each of those cables is made up of six to eight strands uh, that are are woven together. So when a new lift is built, um, the strand a strand gets unwoven one at a time, and then woven into the other end. Uh, and then you take the second strand and weave it into the other end. And then you take the third strand and weave it into the other end. And typically there are six six strands, uh, three woven in each direction and then the end of each strand is tucked into the core so so you cut out a section of the core of the rope which is these days plastic and tuck the end in uh so there end up being six tucks if you're really paying attention you can you can actually see them as you're riding uh uh where the splice is but the short of it is this tech this uh process for splicing a rope that comes from switzerland uh, it's been done for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years. The the people who do it are very, very knowledgeable and skilled at it. And uh, and it works, even though it doesn't sound like it would work. The ropes hold. You, you know, you really you don't hear about uh, it, when there are accidents on lifts. It's it's things falling off of ropes and people falling off of lifts, but not not the haul rope uh, coming apart or anything like that. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, occasionally something goes uh, uh, viral. It's normally, I, I seem to remember an awful one. Uh, I can't remember where it was now. Maybe Uzbekistan or one of the stands uh, a few years ago where the uh, the lift went crazy and it wasn't stopping or slowing down to allow people to get off. Uh, but, you know, typically, you know, accidents are um, a very, a very rare. And I'm going to look out now for that splice and see if I can ever spot it in the yeah. uh, in the cable. If you're really if you're really a nerd like me, you can notice it based on not just uh, the appearance of it, but also you can hear it when it passes a tower. The the splice makes a little bit different noise than the lift makes normally. Um, that that incident you mentioned about the lift going in reverse was in in the country of Georgia. It was uh, Gadari Ski Resort, and uh, and that was that turned out to be quite a modern lift um, that was tinkered with by staff that had not been properly trained and so basically it was it was human error pretty uh awful one as you say the cables themselves you know are uh extremely good you, you mentioned when you're over in uh interalp and you you found it quite interesting seeing some of the innovations that the european resorts were doing and the european manufacturers was there anything that stood out to you there one second i just got to show you a moose walk by <laughs> <laughs> look at that that's brilliant. <laughs> if you go to Jackson Hole, that's what you get. <laughs> you were asking about Interalpine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, when you're at Interalpine, any, uh, you mentioned some of the innovations there. Any uh, innovations that st- stood out to you that particularly uh, of interest? Yeah, so uh, all the lift manufacturers were there. Um, uh, in Europe, like we talked about, energy efficiency is a really big deal. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, these lifts are they're starting to use AI uh, technology to monitor automatically ridership and people in the queue and uh, slowing lifts down automatically, turning the seat heating off if it's too warm, uh, things like that to maximize energy efficiency. And then another big one at the show that was uh, exhibited was uh, technology for making lifts unmanned. So you're already way ahead of us in Europe uh, as far as not having so much staff requirement for running a chairlift or a gondola. But uh, Doppelmeyer in particular has program where they're monitoring ropeway stations remotely so they can have one person watching multiple lifts and multiple stations um, without physically being there watching what's going on at each station uh, individually. Yeah, um, I think uh, an example of that is the, and I have to check my pronunciation, but it's in Zermatt, the, the Kume lift in Zermatt. I'm trying to recall, yeah, it is Doppelmeyer, exactly, because I remember blogging about it before and they're saying it's an unmanned uh, station there. Um, must be an example of one of the ones that you're talking about. So Yeah, yeah it's, uh, called, uh, it's called Oro, uh, the Doppelmeyer version, and, and Leitner Palma, the big other manufacturer, has a version too. The, the Europeans are already way ahead on this. Um, in the United States, we still have multiple lift operators at every station of every lift. You know, with the with the wages that we're paying now and the housing situation in some of these ski towns, uh, the U.S. ski industry is starting to realize maybe it's not the smartest thing to need quite so much staff uh, to run these lifts. 
Yeah, although anecdotally, I can tell you that one of the one of the things that people say when they do go skiing in America and Canada is that the customer service is incredible. So you know, you kind of uh, sort of pay your money and take your choice. But I guess it does seem inevitable that resorts are going to be a bit more efficient. And I fully understand that issue with uh, you know staffing accommodation. Certainly, uh, we went to Sun Valley last summer, and you know it's a big issue over there finding affordable uh, housing for people. Um, I wondered if I could ask you then. So you've been, you've, you've photographed, you've seen over three thousand lifts in North America. You know, if you were talking to someone, you know, it doesn't matter where they are in the world, whether they're in North America or Europe, and you're going to say, right, okay, I'm going to pick out a few lifts. Let's say, forget about the ge- geographical limitations. If you go to any, you know, two or three or four lifts in the states, which ones would you be recommending that people go and have a look at? Uh, I always say my favorite lift I've been on, at least in North America, is uh, Peak to Peak at Whistler Blackcomb. It's Whistler Blackcomb is an amazing ski resort to begin with. Even before they had the Peak to Peak, um, they have two two incredible mountains that are just enormous. Uh, but then they connected them with this gondola that goes straight across mid mountain of each, and the highest point you're something like eighteen hundred feet in the air. It's a 3S gondola, which is a, a kind of a cross between a, a cable car and a regular gondola. So it's got really cool lift technology with detachable grips um, running over multiple cables. And it's in a beautiful place. So peak to peak would be my number one. Uh, and then my number two would probably be Big Sky Montana. They have a number of really cool lifts. Uh, the top lift there is the Lone Peak Tram which goes up to 11,144 feet. It's actually currently being replaced with a larger aerial tram. So um, I'll need to go back there to go on that new tram. But uh, Big Sky is uh, really high alpine terrain above treeline with uh, some really modern lifts. Um, so that would be my my number two must must go for lift enthusiasts. Cool. Okay. Well, I, I'll add those to, uh, you know, what happens when I interview people, you know, for this uh, podcast is I just get more and more things to add to my bucket list of uh, places to ski and, and things to uh, see. But, you know, that has been a really, really interesting conversation. And I am absolutely sure that our listeners will enjoy it uh, as well. We, when we travel, when we go uh, skiing, one thing that is the same between everybody unless you're on you know a a backcountry ski touring trip is that we all take lifts and so much of the time you kind of take them for granted and you think oh you know there's a there's a fast four man here and there's this here and there's that there etc but just thinking a little bit more about them you know i find uh uh, really interesting so uh so i really appreciate your time peter and you getting up early in the morning for us and uh wish you all the best for the summer season in uh jackson hole and uh, you know, keeping on top of whatever new lifts there are and your your travels for uh, for next winter, and and hopefully we'll see you over here in in Europe again because <laughs> evidently there's thousands more lifts that you can uh, you can try at some point. Yeah, there are about sixty, just over sixty new lifts going in in the United States and Canada this uh, this summer, and I will my goal will be to hit all of them next winter. So uh, I'm going to rest up this summer and then uh, get after it. And uh, Europe. I think when I go to Europe, just like this last trip, uh, it will be for vacation. And instead of cataloging every lift in great detail, I'll just ski and enjoy myself and enjoy Europe. 
Cool. Well, that that's uh, brilliant, Peter. And and listener, I'll put all the links in the show notes, but you can have a, a look at liftblogger.com and I'll put a link to uh, Peter's Instagram in there as well. That's great, Peter. Thanks very much. Have a, have a great day. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Peter. You can always let me know. I enjoy all feedback about the show. You can contact us via social at the ski podcast or by email, theskipodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we now have 99 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank uh, Henry J for his recent five star review when he said definitely worth a listen. Uh, if you want to be the hundredth, that would be amazing. And by the way, apologies if you are a user outside of the UK. I've only recently discovered that for some reason Apple doesn't let me see your reviews. So uh, that's great if you have given us a review, but please do email me as well with your thoughts. Now, there are now 181 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up with and 142 were listened to in the last week. Uh, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you do enjoy the podcast, you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Now you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at The Ski Podcast. Uh, I would like to thank Le Travelet for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today, Peter Landsman from liftblog.com. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.